Well, if the last year has taught us anything, it's that we tend to disagree about a lot of stuff, right? We disagree about the pandemic and about masks and social distancing, and we disagree about racial issues and certainly about politics. And what I'd like to do right now is to kind of hit pause on all that and to focus our attention on something about which we tend to disagree that it's far, far more important. The question is this, what color is this dress? You remember this? 2015, it broke the internet, right? And everybody's looking at that, and and some people, when they look at that dress, some people see gold and white, and some people see black and blue, right? Now, how many of you see gold and white? God bless you people, because that's my team, right? How many of you see black and blue? Y'all's messed up, right? So, now, Ashley, Ashley, so... Two-thirds of the people see gold and white. But as I'm sure the black and blue people are whispering right now, the actual dress is black and blue. But we're not looking at the dress right now, are we? We're looking at a picture of the dress. And the picture has been photo manipulated. The white balance has been changed. So it's actually ambiguous, and our brains can't tell. This is crazy. So what happens is our individual brains make different presumptions about the lighting and your brain fills in the colors for you. That's why we see it differently. Now that got really science-y for Easter, right? You're like, stop, stop, that's enough. All right, you'll enjoy this more. Watch this video. Phenomenon known as color constancy. Take this cube, for example. The middle square on the top appears to be a shade of brown, while the one on the side looks much more orange. But in actuality, they're both the exact same color. We promise we haven't cheated here or done any trick photography. Instead, our brain looks at the context, sees a shadow, and instantly thinks, oh, shadows make objects appear darker. And so the brain compensates and interprets the square as lighter than it appears, until the shadow is taken away. That's freaky. That's just not right. That's weird, right? And it's all about presumptions that we bring to it. It's about perception. It's about lighting. And so what in the world does this have to do with Easter? Well, there is a part of the crucifixion story of Christ about which pastors disagree with each other about what happened in that moment, okay? Something that's really important that we disagree about. And what I want to do is I want to drag it out of the shadows, bring it into the light, and maybe change your perspective a little bit this morning. That's my hope, okay? We're going to look at, start at Matthew 27, verse 46. It says, and about the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., okay? About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma shabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the question is, what happened in that moment when Jesus said that on the cross? And pastors will go to blows at, well, not literally, but because we're supposed to be nice. But, <clears throat> we, but we disagree over what happened right there. What, what was Jesus saying? Now, some speculate that that was the moment where all the wrath of God the Father was poured out on the Son, and the Father could not stand to look at the Son and looked away from Some would say fellowship was broken between the Son and the Father in that moment for a moment. One source that I normally respect but would disagree with in this case said this, said Jesus for a time felt the desolation of being unconscious of the Father's presence. Now I would point out to you, there's no verse for that. Okay? That comes from song lyrics. 
That comes maybe from something you heard a pastor say when you were growing up. That comes from some tradition. But that's not in the scriptures. Now, some of this is like pastor geek stuff, right? Like we geek out over this stuff. But there is a big deal here. Because that can imply separation in the very trinity. Okay, so that is to say there is a moment when God the Son became unconscious of God the Father. Let me restate that. There's a moment when God became unconscious of God. What? There's a moment when God broke fellowship with God. That's impossible. There is no rupture in the Trinity. That is impossible. So that is not my position. And what I want to do is just like the dress and just like that cube, I want to pull it out of the shadows, put light on it, and hopefully change your perspective a little bit. But first, I want you to hit pause on that. Because there's two angles to this point. There's, there's another part that I, I hope blows your minds a little bit as well. And that is this. The crucifixion of Christ was prophesied long before it ever happened by a span of about a thousand years. A very typical thing to do on Easter Sunday is for a pastor to preach out of the Gospels, out of the New Testament, of course, right? The Easter story. That's not what I'm going to do today. We're going to spend most of our time in the Psalms. Now, the Psalms are in the Old Testament. They're Jewish scriptures. They're, they're songs or lyrics or poems, okay? And we're going to be looking at one that was written 1,000 years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But I hope you'll see it is written about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let's start out in verse 6. Psalm 22, verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Maybe that sounds a little bit familiar to your ears if you know the crucifixion story of Christ. Let's look again at Matthew 27, verses 38 and following. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. That's almost verbatim from Psalm 22. That's crazy. I think it's talking about the crucifixion of Christ a thousand years before it happened. Now, I grant you so far it's not very convincing, right? I get that. I get that. Let's keep looking at it. Verse 11. It says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Now let me walk you through that, because it's starting to become a little bit more clear. At first it says that this guy who is experiencing this death is all alone. Now if you remember the story of Jesus, at his arrest, all of his followers abandoned him and scattered. And Jesus went to the cross, and he was all alone except that he was surrounded by people who wanted his destruction, just like Psalm 22 says right there. 
And then it says he was poured out like water. How does a human body get poured out like water? We bleed, right? And Jesus, he experienced a Roman scourging or a, a flogging. And what that would have done is just ripped his body open. He is bleeding like water's just running out. And then it says this, my bones are out of joint. One of the things that happens during crucifixion is the dislocation of both the shoulders and the elbows. Arms, post-crucifixion, end up six inches longer. But you don't care because you're dead. Right? But nonetheless, there, they, there's this dislocation that happens. My bones are out of joint. Now, this is interesting to note. King David is the one that wrote Psalm 22. There is nothing recorded in his life that was all, at all like this, where his bones were out of joint. Nothing. David is writing about some other event. Then it says, my heart melted like wax. What is that about? Well, one medical doctor uh, writes and teaches about crucifixion, the crucifixion of Christ. And the doctor points out that uh, one of the things that happens, you basically buy, die by slow suffocation, okay? And, and, and you can't get a breath and you, you suffocate more and more. As a result, the heart compensates. It pumps faster in order to spread that blood with oxygen around your body because your body's calling for it. But that happens long enough. What, what eventually happens is the heart starts to leak fluid into the surrounding tissues. So you end up with a fluid, a watery fluid buildup around your heart and lungs. Eventually, Jesus probably died of cardiac rupture. If you know the story of, of the crucifixion of Christ, what happened is the Roman soldiers came along and they wanted to speed up the resurrection, or excuse me, the crucifixion, because uh, they, they know it takes a long time. And they wanted to hurry this up. So they break the legs of the criminals on either side. Why? Because what you would do is you'd push up, painful as that is, to get a breath and then you'd slump. If you break the legs, you can't push up anymore. So they're speeding it up. So they break their legs, but they don't break Jesus' legs, which, by the way, fulfills another prophecy from the Old Testament. Why didn't they break Jesus' legs? Well, they could see he's already dead. Well, were they sure? Hey, listen, these guys were expert executioners. And if they let a living person down off the cross who had been condemned to crucifixion, they take his place. They are motivated to make sure this guy's dead. So if you remember the story, they take a spear and they drive it up through his abdomen in his rib cage and pierce the heart and lungs. And it says, when they did that, blood and water flowed. Remember that? Blood and water? That's because he's experienced that. It's almost as if his heart melted like wax within his breast. That's what's going on right there. It says, my tongue sticks to my jaws. Remember, Jesus said on the cross, I am thirsty. He's thirsty. And then it says, you lay me in the dust of death. This guy is dying. He's dying. But here's a question. What is the manner of his death? What is causing his death? Are you ready for this? Buckle in. Psalm 22, verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Now, if you know the crucifixion story, you know the soldiers cast lots. That's almost like a rolling dice to make a decision. And, and 
big pieces of fabric were valuable. Who gets it? Let's, let's roll, let's cast lots for it. That happened to Jesus, but it's right there in Psalm 22. It says, I can count all my bones. Because of that Roman flogging, it would tear flesh from bone. He, bones would be exposed. And then please, people of God, tell me it was not lost on you. Look at this. They have pierced my hands and feet. This person is dying with his hands and feet pierced. But there's something you got to know to understand how profound that is. The Romans perfected crucifixion to a high art, a horrible, terrible art of torturous death. But the Romans did not invent it. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, actually. And it would have been 400 years later that the Romans crucified Jesus. But from the Persians inventing it, you got to go 600 years into the past. Here's what I'm telling you right now. That was written about somebody dying with his hands and feet pierced 600 years before crucifixion ever occurred to the mind of man. How does that happen? How does that happen? 600 years, 400 years, 1,000 years. Psalm 22 is written 1,000 years before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and it mirrors it. It is crazy, but I'll tell you what, it's not over. It's not over. Let's continue in verse 26. It says, The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those, so it's a plural group, those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Amen? Because of this guy's death, this plural group, the afflicted, that's us. We have the affliction of sin and guilt and shame and brokenness and living in this crummy world and it's hard. It says the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Where's the eating come into this? Remember Jesus, before his crucifixion, took the Passover feast, reinterpreted it as communion, and said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. And we as the people of God, we eat and are satisfied. But of course, it's not automatic. It says in there that we've got to seek him. It's those who seek him. That means life-changing faith. Not a religion, not dabbling, like a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And the result? Look at the second line up there. Your hearts live forever. This is about eternal life. Eternal life is at stake. Why? Because all of us have rebelled against God. All of us have given God the finger. We've gone our own way. We've broken relationship with God. Now Jesus came, and the reason he died on the cross is to pay for that sin penalty, to pay for that death penalty, so that we could be reunited with God and live with him forever. But if we shun him, if we don't seek him, if we don't have that relationship with him, then we enter eternity in that broken state. And that ain't good. 
That is not good. So there's this message of good news of what Jesus has done. And it's such a big deal that it says this message should go to all the nations. Okay, check that for a second. Here's an Old Testament peek at the fact that God is not just for the Jews. He intends for this guy's death and message to go to all nations, for God will have people from all nations together in one family. And then in there it says that the one who could not keep himself alive, After his death, evidently, he is both worshiping and being worshipped. So the Son worships the Father, the Father worships the Son, the Trinity worships each other for sure. But he is also receiving worship. The only one that gets worship is God himself. There's a wink at the Trinity right in there. But don't miss this. Evidently, this guy is alive after death. There's resurrection right there. There's resurrection. And so what we do as the people of God is we serve him and we proclaim him that he has done it. Which is, of course, synonymous to what? When Jesus hung on the cross, what did he say? It is finished. Nothing left for you to do. Jesus did it all. He, you don't have to earn God's favor. Jesus earned it for you. It's his righteousness that we proclaim according to Psalm 22. So we serve him, we tell people about him. (laughs) Listen, folks, right now, does it seem like I'm preaching from the New Testament? Doesn't it? This is Old Testament. This is 1,000 years before the death of Jesus Christ. It's stunning, it's beautiful, it is true. It's not just some superstition. It's not the opiate of the masses. It's not an emotional crutch. This is legit. God planned it out long, long before it happened. It's true. Absolutely true. Now at Easter, I imagine there are folks here that don't normally come to church. I want to speak to you for a second. I want to know, you to know, I am so glad you're here. Thanks for coming. Thanks for coming. Some of you come like uh, one to three times a year. It's like Christmas, Easter, and maybe Mother's Day. That's on the bubble. Depends how much guilt mom has on you, right? right. So one to three times. And you probably think that it's my job as a pastor that I want to kind of twist your arm and get you 52 days a year. And that could not be further from the truth. Because all that is is empty and vain religion. I don't want you to experience God one to three times a year. I don't want you to experience God 52 times a year. I want you to experience God 365 days a year. I want you to enter a relationship with him. This stuff is true There's predictive prophecy. It's mind-blowing. I want you to engage with God. I want you to eat and be satisfied. He's real. He's true. He endured the cross for you. And I want you to experience that. But that's not the only thing I'm gunning for this morning. Listen, uh, there's a whole other part to Psalm 22 that I'm really, really excited to show you. Are you ready for this? Okay, I start, maybe you caught that I started at verse 6. Let me show you verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There it is. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, wait, doesn't that sound familiar? Right? That's precisely what Jesus said as he hung on the cross. Was that the moment that the Trinity was torn asunder? No. No. Not at all. Listen, 
Jesus, when he hangs on the cross, he's not at a loss. He's not hanging there saying, Father, what's going on here? I didn't sign up for this. That's not what Jesus is saying. Before he was arrested, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe you remember, he's sweating blood. He's praying so much. He's considering taking, figuratively taking the cup of God's wrath. Wrath towards all human sin. And and he's like, Father, if this cup could pass from me, like if there's another way, I'm in. And then he says, but not as I will, but as you will. And he takes that cup and drinks it to the last. About that, the great Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, had this to say. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath, and it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfolded, as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was. Therefore God brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace, that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames, and might see where he was going, and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners, as knowing what it was. But when he took that cup, then knowing what was in it, so was his love to us infinitely the more wonderful, and so was his obedience to the Father infinitely the more perfect. See, when you consider what Jesus was saying on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You got to be really careful because you don't want to imply that the father tricked the son into it. Right? Like, and so Jesus is freaking out saying, God, where'd you go? Why are you forsaking me? I didn't sign up for this. That's not what happened. So then why did Jesus say that on the cross? It is my firm belief that Jesus is intentionally quoting Psalm 22. Remember, Jesus is the Word of God. Nobody knows the Word of God more than Jesus. Jesus is the divine inspiration behind the Bible. He knows Psalm 22. He is quoting Psalm 22. Well, you'd say, wait a minute. Why didn't he quote the whole thing? People. He's being crucified. Will you cut him some slack, right? Like when you're being crucified, you're not chatty Cathy. Right? You get really efficient with your words. You use shorthand. And that was a common way in shorthand to refer to a whole psalm by just quoting the first line. And so there Jesus is drawing our attention to Psalm 22. He's saying, go read it. It was written a thousand years ago, but it's happening right now, right in this moment, right before you. He's saying, I am the Messiah. It's all about me. I'm dying for you. Will you trust me? Will you trust me? And I believe in that moment, the Father is smitten with the Son. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit planned this out together long ago. And there's the Son accomplishing the gospel, which brings glory to the triune God. And the Father smitten with the Son, the Son smitten with the Father. That's what the Trinity is like. Which, again, is a bunch of pastor geek stuff on theology. I get that. But how does this apply to us? How how does this come home to us? I think we can relate to this. Look at that. First line again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Let me ask you, can you relate to that? I know I can. Feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? Like we experience the pain of this fallen, sinful, broken world, and we cry out to God, we groan to God, and it seems like he's not saving us, like he's abandoning us, like he's forsaking us. 
And I'll tell you what, if you interpret what Jesus said on the cross as the Father forsaking the Son, if God the Father would forsake God the Son, he sure as heck would forsake your sorry soul. But that's not the kind of God he is. Like the dress in the cube, I want to pull it out of the shadows and put light on it so we see it correctly. You see, typical of any of the Psalms is to start out the Psalm with a very real, raw human emotion. Now, we are given over to being fake Christians. We come in here, hey, how are you doing? Oh, it's great. Praise Jesus and all that, right? And, but, but what the Psalms do is they're raw and they're real. They're like, this is the stuff I would never admit to my pastor, but this is how I feel right now. I feel like God's forsaken me. And then what the psalm does is it goes on to give truth about who God is that answers that emotion and even corrects that emotion. Okay, that's where the psalm starts. It's not where it ends. Look at the next four verses. Oh my God, I cry, cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet. Word of contrast right there. Yet. You are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. Why would Israel praise God if he forsakes them? Because he doesn't. And King David knows his Old Testament history, so here's what he says. Look. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. That's the kind of God you are, despite how I feel. In fact, in answer to the cry in verse 1, look at what verses 23 and 24 say. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. Why? Here it is. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. That's about the crucifixion of Jesus. That's also about our lives. You see, the very point of Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus is intentionally directing our attention toward, the whole point of Psalm 22 is that though you f may feel forsaken by God, that's not who he is. God does not forsake us. He does not. After all, did the Father forsake the Son? So there's Jesus in his humanness experiencing incredible anguish and pain on the cross. But remember, God the Father watched over him, loved him, and raised him from the dead. That's not forsaking. That's not. It's the kind of God he is. And so when we read Psalm 22, we got to admit, we feel at times abandoned and forsaken by God, but he has not forsaken us. Jesus is saying during his darkest hour, like you all may look up at me, me here on the cross, and you may think that I'm losing, you may think that Satan is winning, but just wait. Just wait. It's not over yet. Just wait. It might be crucifixion Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's not over yet. Just wait. God knows what he is doing. Satisfaction is coming. Resurrection is coming. Life is coming. Just wait. Just wait. So, uh, in anticipation of this sermon, I called my son. And that usually gets interesting. So Caleb's 22 now, oh, excuse me, 21. And uh, I called him up, and I said, Hey, son, uh, I need to know, like... When you were growing up, what was something that I did in your life 
that you just hated and you didn't like at the time, but now that you're 21, you like kind of get it and you're okay with it. And that boy did not take a breath. (laughs) He did not hesitate. And he spit out these words. All of it. God bless you, you little jerk. (laughs) If you know my son, he ain't little. Anyway. So I said, dude, I have a sermon to preach. I need you to be a little bit more specific. And so he said, well, you uh, always challenged me not to have a small screen life. This is a small screen life right here, right? And so uh, growing up in the generation that he did, like uh, it's social media and it's video games and it's YouTube videos and now it's TikTok videos and, and all that, a small screen life. Even if it's a TV, it's a small screen life. And I wanted him to have a big life. In fact, when he was growing up, there was a period when he was a little guy that he was starting to play video games. We made him read for time. So if you wanted an hour of video game time, you had to read for an hour. How do you think you felt about that? Why do you hate me? Why do you not love me? Why have you forsaken me? We're like little kids, aren't we? Aren't we like little kids with God? Listen, God the Father knows exactly what he's doing. He's never late. His goals for us are bigger than our goals for us, right? And he knows what he's up to. He does not turn away from us. He does not forsake us. And so what about you? Maybe you feel too gross for God. Too much sin in your life. There's no way God could look at you. He would look away. He would run away. He does not want you. He would forsake you. Or maybe life just hurts, and God isn't doing what you want him to do, and you're wondering, has he abandoned me? Has he kicked me to the curb? Listen, you got to know something. That's how the psalm starts. That's not how the psalm ends. And though that might be where you are in your life right now, that does not have to be where your story ends. There's more to it. You just wait. Maybe God hasn't forgotten you. Maybe God hasn't looked away. Maybe, just maybe, he loves you so much that he would endure the cross for you. He loves you. He longs for you. He wants to reunite with you. He wants to take you home to eternity to rejoice with you for all of eternity. And I get it that it hurts right now. I get it that right now it's kind of dark. I understand that. But just wait. Just wait. Just wait. God has not forsaken Jesus, and God has not forsaken you. Just wait. Just wait. And now what we're going to do is we're going to sing about that together. In fact, would you stand with me? Let me pray for us. Father God, as we stand before you as the body of Christ, we rejoice that our story is not yet over, that you are not a forsaking kind of God. That's not who you are. Father, we admit before you there's nothing in us that earns it. It's not our righteousness that gets proclaimed. Jesus Christ, he has done it. It is finished. And all glory goes to him and all worship goes to him. Thank you so much for that grace. I pray that you would suck all of us, not into a religion, but into a wild, life-changing faith relationship with you. And that right now we would respond to that through song. Stir our hearts, Lord, please. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.